Hi friends, welcome to The Faithful Podcast. Stories of people who walk by faith and gained a fuller understanding of the faithfulness of God. I'm your host, Stephanie Baker. Thanks so much for listening today. I have an amazing guest that I'm so excited for you all to hear. Chuck DeGroat is a husband, a father, a counselor, a professor of pastoral care at Western Seminary, and the author of many books, including his most recent, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Chuck shares about how prevalent narcissistic tendencies are in our culture, and especially in our churches. I know that Chuck's sharing of his research, as well as his years of experience working in churches, will be a blessing to you. So here is my interview with Chuck DeGroat. Chuck, thank you so much for joining me today on The Faithful Podcast. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah. And um, Chuck, you are an author and you work in pastoral care and you have all kinds of stuff that you kind of are working on, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I I get to wear a number of different hats, which is kind of fun, but uh, but I'm, I'm originally from Long Island, New York, and uh Married to Sarah for 26 years. We've lived in Chicago, Orlando, wow. San Francisco, Michigan, in a lot of different church contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the stories I tell come from all different kinds of places and, and church contexts. I was a pastor uh, in two, two different states, Orlando and, and San Francisco, where I started church-based counseling centers. Okay. And so... Uh, that's been really rewarding work. Now I teach future pastors as a seminary prof, and uh, all the while I've been a therapist too. So I've been a, uh, a therapist for over 20 years, and somehow, some way, I didn't pick it, I didn't necessarily want it, but early on began working with women primarily who'd experienced abuse uh, mm. at the hands of men in the church, uh, elders and pastors. And I was pretty freaked out about it in the beginning, to be honest. I didn't know what I was doing or how to help. And I've so I've kind of learned through the years uh, doing that kind of work. Mm. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So how did you how did you come to know Jesus? Well, so my story uh, goes back a long ways. And I, I really I sort of feel like um, it's a story of God's providence in my life. Uh, from the very beginning. I know a lot of people say that. I I do. I grew up in a home where my mom and dad uh, wanted to uh, get me baptized because they had uh, grown up in the church, but they weren't necessarily Christians. So they went to church to get me baptized. They um, encountered Jesus. Yeah. It stuck. And um, I grew up in a home where faith was pretty alive. And so, wow. um, and then, uh, committed my life to Jesus in my teens um, and became a pretty nerdy, theologically dogmatic um, uh, kind of guy shortly after that, very certain about everything I knew. That's a, my own <laughs> narcissism began there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, 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 that's a pretty, so even at, at a young age, you were already really into um, this deep thinking and um, research yeah. and yeah, I think it was a way of coping for me. In a my my home environment was pretty chaotic at times, and I think coming to faith in in Jesus and um, le- learning, discovering that I had a mind that could um, maybe grasp some of these things was um, 
a way that I attach myself to that uh, in a way that oftentimes when I tell the story of the narcissism book, I say, I think my own dogmatism and certainty and um, shame story was exposed in seminary in a way mm. that was, I mean, I really incredible given the fact that I was probably 26, 27 years old that um, I was able to begin to do some inner work at a pretty early age. Yeah. So what, what kind of brought this narcissism topic to your, um, to your mind? What, what sort of brought this out? Um, well, the, the short story, like in terms of writing the book, you mean? Uh, um, well, actually, I mean, I'm interested in the, the seminary story and I know you shared it yeah. in the book. I think it's a pretty, pretty yeah. great thing. Yeah. I, it was a, really, it was an honest professor who, um, I went to see, I didn't like, he was a counseling professor. I didn't like him very much because he, he poked and prodded in areas uh -huh. that I didn't want to be poked and prodded. But I had spent a whole summer in um, England at Oxford University, which I thought was oh. a pretty big deal, trying to prove that I yeah. had what it took to do uh, PhD work. And uh -huh. I um, was exhausted on my way home. I was really sick. Uh, I was overwhelmed. Wow. Um, the whole summer I spent in massive anxiety. And so I actually pursued this counseling professor to say, hey, I I don't know what's going on, but I'm feeling all these things. And like kind of typical, you know, kind of old wise counseling professor, just nodding the whole time. Like I, I see plenty of guys like you, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> and basically said, hey, if you continue in this course, you're going to be dangerous to the church. Um, you're probably going to be dangerous to your spouse. Um, mm. This is not a healthy path to pursue, not necessarily like PhD work, but like um, I think you could just see that it was really a false self that I was living out of. And okay. um, and he invited me actually to, he said, just why don't you stay around the seminary a little longer and do a mental health counseling degree before you do PhD work. So he like didn't completely expose it, but he said, get another degree. Like okay. maybe that appealed to me in a way, you know, like, yeah. so uh I did a mental health counseling degree and got my own counseling. And um, that's a story in and of itself of being exposed and challenged um, mm -hmm. in ways that were really humbling and redeeming. And um, yeah, really good. Oh, wow. That's yeah. that's so important to have those people that are willing to help, uh, yeah. you know, expose those areas in our lives that maybe we yeah. don't we don't want to deal with. So what yeah. what brought you into the journey toward this narcissism book? Yeah. So the, sh the shorter story is a story that goes back probably four or five years working with a, a church, uh, a church staff around issues of narcissism. And the staff, a number of the staff members coming to me at one point, hey, we, you know, we've not been able to find any good resources that uh, describe this for the sake of the church and pastors, like well, there are plenty of resources on narcissism, but something that would really encapsulate um, this conversation. And yeah. uh, that was that was really, I, and I said, no, I'm not the person to write it. I'm not necessarily interested. And I'd written mm -hmm. a book called Wholeheartedness that was much more a journey of the heart. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to do was write about clinical pathology and narcissism and something that was uh, really sort of a dark stain on the church. Mm -hmm. But um but there, it's. I talked to a, a publisher that seemed very, very interested in the topic, um, not least because a lot was going on in the church, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, 
Okay. And they felt like it might be a good moment for, for us to kind of name some of these dynamics. Um, and so that really, that really got me going writing it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I think it's, um, it's been so important for the church to call out our flaws. And, um, and I just know so many people that have walked away from the church for different reasons. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, this, um, hiddenness, you know, this cloak that we keep of, you know, we have Mm -hmm. to keep up this, um, appearance of having it together. And I mean, even, even within staff or as the church as a whole, I think there's a lot of feeling like we have to keep up this facade and, if we if we let it down, then oh man, there's there's no telling where this is going to end. So that's yeah. okay. So you you started feeling this call to writing this book, and I'm sure it was a super easy thing to do, right? Like you know, <laughs> lots super of easy. yeah, super easy. You know, yeah. just sit down, write, crank it out in a week. Now tell me about yeah. that process. Yeah. So um, I ended up. I mean, I thought I knew quite a bit about it, and I'd read quite a bit, but I I did a deep dive back into some of the more recent research on narcissism and um, felt sick to my stomach. You know, yeah. um, this is also I was writing it in the midst of a pretty contentious political moment. You know, where there was lots of sort of diagnosing of the current president and mm-hmm. um, a number of stories that were being highlighted in the church, and so I felt. I wasn't entirely sure what direction I, I needed or wanted to go in, like how much of my own story of, of experiencing narcissism in the church should I tell? Yeah. Uh, should I, should this be a kind of tell all? Let's talk about, you know, the names of the people who've done the things that we're really pretty angry about in the church, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there were a number of people who were saying, Hey, you have to name names. This has to be like, you've, you've got to get honest about the church. And I, I really didn't, in the process, I, I really took time to discern how, how much of this do I want to make about really dramatic stories, um, which might be eye-catching, and yeah. how much of this do I want to make about the dynamics and really give people a resource mm-hmm. um, that describes and defines and diagnoses and gives them hooks to and, and story and stories, but not necessarily the stories that are salacious, right? And that right. was a big that was a big piece of this. I mean, I've had people afterwards say, hey, that was a mistake. You probably would have sold many more copies if it would have been more of a tell-all. But I really feel like my own conviction was this doesn't need to be super dramatic. This needs to be just a solid resource for the church. And so once I kind of got into that space, um, the chapters started unfolding. Like I knew I wanted to do something around the nine faces because I had gotten acquainted with the Enneagram Mm -hmm. uh, almost 20, probably 23 years ago now and before it became popular and right. probably overdone and had run things through that grid. Um, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to do stuff on defining narcissistic characteristics and systems and stuff. And so that's really, uh, really felt like it came together after that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I, I may be, you know, assuming some things for you, but with your counseling background, a good counselor doesn't necessarily tell you everything. It kind of they sort of lead you to that that place where they, you can make your own conclusion from there. You know, so you're, yeah. you know, you're giving people this resource so that yeah, they can yeah. apply yeah. it more to their own lives, and yeah, uh, and I think that's really well, helpful. You you um, 
what, what's interesting is, yeah, I did. I mean, there were there were correspondences after I wrote it from people who said, um, "I can't believe you told my story in the book," <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> Yeah. And, and a friend of mine said, it takes someone who's narcissistic to see themselves in every story, in a, you know, but um, I had uh, really intentionally said, hey, none of the stories in the book are like one-to-one correspondences with anything that I've ever done, or uh, they're always amalgamations of, of different stories. But still, there, there were a few who came my way and said, hey, my lawyer is going to be in touch because you told my story. You didn't name my name, but you wow. told my story. Never oh, heard anything man. about it. That, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah. And you know the I guess the narcissism and even picking up your book in the first place to look and see is that is he writing about me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I w- I wondered about that too in, uh, <laughs> in situations that I was in and yeah and, uh, yeah yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things I'm curious about is you know, we we do throw this term narcissism around a lot. Like people use it to describe a lot of people that that seem to be, you know, full of themselves or whatever it might be. Um, how would you dis- how would you define narcissism? I know that's a big term, but yeah. if you were to give like a quick definition of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I I'm really careful to um distinguish between like the textbook definitions and maybe a broader definition where um, we might, you know, we might nuance it a little bit. Typically when we talk about narcissism, we talk about um, grandiosity, Mm -hmm. attention seeking, um, entitlement, and a lack of empathy. Those four things, there are other things that, that we could say, oftentimes there are vocational and relational disruptions, but those are really the big four. Um, uh, grandiosity, entitlement, and te- attention seeking, and a lack of empathy is is really big. Like narcissists really can't get into the experience of another human being, human being in any meaningful way. Uh-huh. And that's that's kind of the the definition that you'll see from the DSM five, which is kind of the the counseling um, bible, right. <laughs> psychology bible. Mm-hmm. You know, with all the definitions. Um, there are those who go on to make further distinctions, and I talk about grandiose. Narcissism versus vulnerable narcissism, which is a distinction made in the literature. Don't necessarily like the language of vulnerable narcissism, but what that means is it's it's kind of more of a, a passive narcissism, passive okay. aggressive, a smug superiority. This is not someone who you you'll find necessarily on stage like the grandiose narcissist. Okay. But nevertheless, they show up with major control, entitlement, um, aggrandizement in other kinds of ways, usually okay. more passive and passive aggressive ways. Yeah. And so that gets at some basic definitions, but of course, you know, I nuance this with the nine faces of narcissism, mm-hmm. which I, um, I still hold is like, Hey, listen, this was just my attempt to, um, to wade into a larger conversation about this. I haven't gotten much pushback around it, but I didn't know when I first wrote it, like, how's this going to go over? Yeah. Um, because I thought I was, I was trying to, pave some new terrain yeah. on this. Yeah. I th- I think, yeah, I, I guess I agree with you that vulnerable almost sounds like it's a, um, a good term, like this vulnerable yeah. narcissism versus, yeah. you know, passive, yeah. I think is, is more accurate, but yeah, I yeah. think that there is some, there are so many different forms that this can take. And I think that, um, you know, you kind of alluded to like Trump, you know, some people say that's, 
that's narcissism right there. And um, that would be more of a grandiose type of behavior, obviously, but there's, and, and, you know, I've, I've known and people very close to me have seen a lot of passive narcissism or vulnerable narcissism in our lives. So it is very much a part of, unfortunately, just the culture, but also the church. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, read the book back at the start of all this COVID stuff back in maybe March. And um, when we, I found out we were going to get to chat, I reread it and it mm-hmm. really struck me the way that you keep this balance where you show, you, you, you know, you call out narcissism for what it is, mm-hmm. but you also demonstrate this compassion toward yeah. um, this person who's dealing with narcissism. And, yeah. It's it's really remarkable. I think you, you do a really good job of of walking this line of of not like okay, I'm going to say this is an okay behavior. I'm going to call out the right. ad, the actions for what they are. Um, right. But I I'm just curious what helped to shape this attitude toward these individuals. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's um, uh, that's uh, that's a big deal for me and. Um, when I do podcasts every now and then, I, I don't think people always pick up on that, you know, yeah. and that was a really important piece. Uh, par- part of that actually comes from um, just doing my own work in counseling over the mm-hmm. years around around my own uh, my own pain story uh, and growing in compassion for uh, people who had hurt me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I've got a deep theological and biblical conviction that we are both beautiful and broken, mm-hmm. that we are um, image bearing um, uh, uh, sons and daughters of, of God. And we are broken in ways that we're, we're often um, unaware of, uh, hidden to ourselves and yeah. hidden to others. And I want to hold those in a kind of tension uh, that's why I say in the beginning, even I don't reduce anyone to a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we 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 can call someone addict, personality disorder, even sinner, but that does mm-hmm. not that does not define us to the core. And yep. so <clears throat> it really comes out of some of some of my own work and and having to uh, in ways that were often frustrating come back around to gosh, I I want to hate that person, <laughs> um, and and yet. Uh, and I want to reduce that person down to the way he hurt me. Yeah. And yet, um, he's a person with a story too. He's a person with pain mm-hmm. too. And I, I think this was probably the part of the book that, um, <clears throat> I was probably uh, most anxious about in the sense that, I mean, I, I, uh, there was a woman who, uh, before the book even came out, had read some of my blogs around these kinds of things. And she was the head of, a. Uh, uh, in another country, a kind of a domestic violence group uh, of Christians, um, yeah. evangelical Christians. And she said, uh, you do not, you refuse to call evil, evil. And I, uh, she said, I'm going to um, unfollow you on social media and not oh. read your blog, you know. And, wow. and it was really, it was painful because it, it was sort of like, um, and I questioned myself, am I missing something? Am I, am I not taking this seriously enough? Yeah. But like I say, it's a deep theological conviction. It's a deep psychological conviction or, around personality disorders and, and how a kind of false self masks the true self. Right. Um, James Masterson's work on personality disorders has been really important to me. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's a conviction that I hold. And um, I want to believe that uh, e- even though, for instance, the grandiose narcissist lives yeah. out of a kind of stage self, that behind the curtain, behind the stage is um, maybe the little boy, the little girl who is, you know, hidden, mm-hmm. uh, burdened by shame and worth getting to know. Yeah, I think that's that's you know, that comes, that's so compassionate, just the words you're saying. And just, there's so much tenderness in there because, you know, that, that could be us and it might be us, you know, we don't, the more that we become, well, we, you know, as we do work and we understand who we are and what our struggles are, we want someone else to show us that kind of tenderness and that kind of compassion and not to reduce us to a diagnosis, as you say. And, Mm -hmm. You know, as a Christian, we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that there is there there is evil happening all around us that we, you know, that the enemy is at work and, you know, there are things that we could become susceptible to and we may not, you know, we may have grown up in a great home with great home life and nobody would have ever guessed that we would become the person that we've become. Um, but, yeah, there's just... That, that could be us in that situation. And I've seen times yeah. where folks that I've known that, like you talked about, I want to I be angry at them. And I have been for periods of time. Mm. But then I've also seen times where some of those people have hit, maybe not rock bottom, but they've hit a low mm. and they've hit a yeah. really hard time. And I'm, I'm sad for them. And, I'm, and we should never feel <laughs> bad over having compassion. We mm-hmm. shouldn't, like, that's Jesus, and yeah. and to be to see that person as just a diagnosis or to see them as just this person who did evil and you know unable to be redeemed then yeah. we've we've lost the gospel right yeah. i mean yeah. anybody I so. can be redeemed so yeah. i i think I that so. i think that the heart behind that person's comment was they see the suffering that this you know that narcissists have done maybe to the mm-hmm. people if they're domestic violence survivors mm-hmm. and they they see that on a regular basis and maybe they're just inundated and they, they want yeah. to respond out of compassion toward those folks, yeah, but you lose uh, yeah, the compassion right. toward the others. That's right. That's um, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, chapter four. Wow. Chapter four was about the narcissistic pastor and mm-hmm. I read it and was just blown away. And you I mean, you talked about this, that people <clears throat> saw, you know, maybe their own situations in different parts of the book. This felt very personal to me. Mm-hmm. This felt very like like you sat sat in and maybe some staff meetings for my <laughs> my husband's previous employment or something like that. Yeah. But it, in reading your book, you also talk about how maybe as you were preparing and doing um, these different posts about it, you mm-hmm. had all these people come to you and say, no, you're telling my story. Like, this is right. the situation I've been through. So it's this universe, right. not universal maybe, but this yeah. very common theme in, um, unfortunately, in churches. So, wh- I mean, I, I know, I'm sure it's worldwide. So I, but I, I'm assuming that in the American church, it may be more common. Why, why do you think that Maybe the American church, are we, are we oblivious to it? Or, I mean, what's happening? What do you feel like is causing that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, I do wish I would have done a chapter even on this in more depth, you know, why in the American church in particular. Um, and this is where I probably go, go beyond the, 
the scope of the book in in a conversation like this. I mean, yeah. I I don't happen to think that um, this is a new thing. Right. Um, now, it's easy to say, and I do say that it goes back to Genesis three in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a theological story to tell that you can weave throughout the whole of the scriptures, but. Um, the American experience is a really unique one. Um, I do think that there's there's something about the story of a people who come to a new land um, that is occupied by others who live here, who call it their native land, and who take this um, uh, and who continue to take uh, with a sense of manifest destiny, you know, with a sense of, um, uh, uh, yeah, who employ chattel slavery, you know, to build an economy, um, yeah. Who, uh, you know, uh, there, we can get into that story. It's yeah. a complex one, and I, you could already tell, I'm, I'm kind of editing myself because I don't <laughs> know how far to go. But sometimes, we, we've got a complicated story, and it's a story of, uh, well, entitlement. Yeah. The, you know, the grandiosity. <laughs> Some mm-hmm. of the words were used early, right. earlier, right? Lack of empathy. <laughs> Lack of empathy. Yeah. Right. Um. And then, you know, when I was coming of age in terms of my own identity, pastoral identity, I was kind of coming in in the mid-90s, this rise in a church planting movement that's happening where white church planters are going into cities, urban centers. Uh, I I ended up working in one of those urban centers in San Francisco where where oftentimes church planters would go into cities, as Christina Cleveland has said, and not even – regard in any way the, the experience of black pastors who've been there for uh, generations, you right. know, black churches <laughs> that have been there, I should say, for generations, yeah. right? To say, hey, what, what has God been doing in this city for the last 75 years, you know? Yeah. With this sense of, uh, I'm entitled to go into the city and uh, um, plant my church. So it's really complex. I, I don't think narcissism is a new thing. I take I think it takes different shapes in different times. And and I do think the the more recent um, convergence of church planting, celebrity culture, social media, um, uh, publication, all these different things are converging in a way that I think uh, has set us up for what we see in 2020, the kind of narcissism, the kind of big stage celebrity culture, uh, big falls, um, a a high number of suicides. I mean, Mm. uh, uh, I've been talking about suicides for about the last, I remember doing a talk years ago, actually with Tim Keller shortly after, um, the suicide of a a pastor Mm -hmm. and, um, a church planner. And, Mm. saying it out loud and people were, you know, weeping because they knew this guy and, and just watching so many um, who s- were set up for, if your church doesn't reach 200, 500, a thousand, you're a failure. Mm. So um, I've gone on too long to answer your question. I, I think <laughs> it's a complicated answer to a really, really important question that probably need, I think has been explored by some. Um, I think I've, probably would have wanted to explore a little more in the book. Yeah, I I think that you're right. This sort of convergence of all these different things has created kind of a, a perfect storm right now where that it's happening. Yeah. It's not just in the big churches. It's all of the churches are mm-hmm. trying to get to that level. I say all, obviously. There's plenty of great churches, but churches of all sizes are mm-hmm. creating this sort of 
celebrity status for for pastors. <laughs> we're we're you know live streaming our our um, our lessons, and we're posting mm-hmm. on social media on the regular, and we're trying to get all these followers. And it's all about are we getting this this feedback in that way? And yeah. um, you you know you talked about going into the cities and not giving any regard to what's been happening spiritually there for a long time before. That sounds like very much like what we, you know, we're going to take care of these savages, you know, like that's very historical. Yeah. We've been doing that since yes. like you were talking about. Yes. Um, it's in our history, yes. but um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that, uh, I think that the celebrity stuff is really interesting to me because, you know, you look at Jesus and how, when he started getting crowds, like he didn't really, he wasn't excited about the crowds. He mm-hmm. knew that the crowds mm-hmm. are not what he was going yeah. for. He was going after hearts. And um, yeah. not to say, you know, you can't have social media or you can't have these other things, but just to kind of, yeah, we got to check our heart because, you know, Jesus, when he started getting crowds, he'd say something kind of wacky, like, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then people are like, wait, hold on, we don't want this. And so if you were like a PR person for Jesus, you'd be like, Jesus, can you, can you tone it down a little bit? Can you, can you make it a little more palatable for everybody? But um, I think that that, that celebrity culture has been really hard on pastors because you do have these mm-hmm. high expectations put on you to be so many things that are not necessarily pastoral. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, in my experience, one of the reasons that people who bring up concerns, uh, maybe they, in a church, you see some problems um there's that can be really difficult because sometimes you get like vilified if you're the person mm-hmm. who brings up these concerns, or maybe it's just dismissed like, oh, this pastor is so great, there's no way, or this church member, or this, you know, somebody in leadership, there's no way this could be the case. But, um, I mean, if we love people, we have to confront, right? Um, mm-hmm. but what would you say? the loving way to confront maybe issues that you see in leadership in, um, if you're a member of a church. Um, and also, I guess, if you're a staff member, how would you go about confronting issues that you see? Yeah, you ask good questions. And, and this is another complicated one, right? I made, uh, I made the mistake of confronting um, a pastor I worked with uh, years ago. Yeah. Um, and lost my job because of it. Mm. Um, and wow. I used the language of narcissism. And uh, uh, I went in um, like in a mano y mano way. I'm going to stand up for integrity and the yeah. truth. And, um, you know, I have, I have regrets uh, about that. Um, it, so I've, I've learned from my own experience of, of uh showing up in a way that I, I think was probably aggressive and reactive and trying to speak the truth, but doing it in a way that was, um, you know, alienating. Yeah. Uh, even, even if I had good things to say, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I do often say as a kind of a principle, if someone feels like there's, there's something going on in their church, let's say you're a staff member, associate pastor, uh, volunteer coordinator, whatever you are, wherever yeah. you are on the church staff, then I think it's important before kind of saying, wow, I read Chuck's book and I think I'm going to go in and have a conversation or I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to write the elder board, which is yeah. another thing I hear you, um, to 
get into some good counseling and begin to yeah. process your experience and story. So slow way down. Mm-hmm. Um, unless unless it's a an urgent issue in the sense that uh, uh, a child is in danger uh, of abuse, yeah. um, elder, senior, a person with a disability, mm-hmm. um, go and get some counseling. Yeah. Um, and slow way down and try to process how you're being impacted and think carefully with the therapist about what might be good in your particular context. What might a healthy be- pathway be for you? Yeah. Um, that looks different. And so I don't want to give a one size fits all answer to this mm-hmm. question. Um, I, uh, I can tell you that as I have done this work over the years and been invited to churches, large and small, I've had to custom tailor processes. You know, everyone always asks me, so what do you do? And I'm <laughs> like, well, I have a thousand questions to ask you. Yeah. Um, I remember one church that I, uh, I did some work with. I, uh, the pastor was willing, and this is one big factor. The pastor was actually willing to engage some conversation around this. And so it was a large church staff. I invited uh, many of the senior staff in pairs or groups of three um, to come in and share their experience with the senior pastor. The senior pastor was not allowed to to dispute it. Mm. The pastor was only allowed to listen and ask clarifying questions. Um, and, and it was really instructive to them, to the senior pastor. By and large, the senior pastor couldn't do it, you know, because yeah. he wanted to correct what he was hearing. But it the process itself was kind of exposing and clarifying to all of us. And that seemed best in that situation. Mm. Um, you can't do that in a small church where, you know, maybe there's one full-time staff member, but you're an elder at the church and you're seeing these dynamics. And so, um, so, but you want to do it with, uh, with, with people around you who are caring for you. Um, yeah. I think, I, I don't know. I wish I would have had people around me, I wish I would have had a therapist say, yeah, I think you're ready to go in and have that conversation. This is the way to have that conversation mm-hmm. wisely and well. Um, yeah. I think that's that's really good. They, um, that pastor, to have the humility to, to come and say, okay, I'm ready to work on this and to sit through that. Wow. I can't imagine. I, would, I mean, I... I have never served in that kind of leadership role, but to have people, it's like an intervention. I mean, you're, you're bringing in a group of people to tell you we see a major problem. That's gotta be really, really tough. And just to, just to even nuance that even further, it could be a sign of humility or it could be a sign of, I'm I'm so good at this that I can, (laughs) um, you remember I talked a little bit about faux vulnerability, vulnerability, vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, a, a kind of, listen, Chuck, I know myself really well. I know mm-hmm. I have flaws. Uh, we're all sinners. I'm happy to cooperate in any process. Now I'm kind of laying it on a little thick here, right? Yeah. But like, uh, this is kind of what I hear, you know? Uh-huh. And so he seems willing. And then the process ex- itself is exposing Yeah. Um, because there's, it turns out he can't, he can't endure it. He he can't sit and listen and respond with humility. He's got to correct. He's got to intervene. And so that's where these processes often unfold in ways that like I, someone the other day, I was doing a, a podcast and said, well, you is the expert on narcissism. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I feel like I've yeah. got a dart and I kind of throw it. I hope I get close to the target. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of times I miss, uh, I, you know, I, 
something that I do goes sideways and I, I say, I, I don't think that that was helpful. Let's go yeah. in a different direction, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that somebody coming and saying, being the expert in anything is always like, oh, crud. Here, this is, this is I'm going to be hit with this really hard now. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't, I don't uh-huh. want that kind of title. But, um, yeah, I think that the fact, the vulnerability thing is really big. Um, this fake vulnerability is... I think I think we all struggle with that, right? I mean, we all have times where we're like, "Man, I'm just I'm I'm a sinner saved by grace," but in the inside, we're kind of like, "God's lucky to have me on His team." Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm such an That's asset kind of to the goes. team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I there were a couple of times in the book that you mentioned, like maybe doing um, I don't remember the terms. I don't know if it was an inventory of these church planters or evaluation assessment. 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 That's what it has. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe you shared with the, um, you know, uh, the overseeing board, whoever that might be, some concerns and how, how was that received? I mean, I think you talked about yeah. some narcissistic things that you saw yeah. in those situations, but. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done hundreds of these now. Um, but, I think in particular early on in, in church planning context where I was, I was a little bit younger, you know, I didn't, I couldn't say, Hey, I wrote a book on this. So I know what I'm talking about. No, it, <laughs> or like I was the sole voice that would maybe raise the yellow flag or the red flag. I, mm-hmm. I think uh, I, I can tell a number of different stories around um, how my feedback wasn't received very well. Uh, either it was like, Oh, you psychologist types are always, looking for the the bad news. You know, God is all over this right now. This man is full of the spirit. Um, you know, the gospel is going forward in his ministry and his mission. He's already raised $200,000. God is clearly in this, you know, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> there's a problem here. Yeah. Um, there have been any number of stories like that. What was really interesting to me, shortly after the book came out, uh, I got an email from someone who's a part of a um, kind of a denominational group that I was a part of. 15, 16, 17 years ago when I yeah. had my experience of of being fired for having this confrontation with this pastor. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, here it goes. I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, here comes the email scolding me for, and it was, hey, you remember back when you were in our classes or in back in the day, it was, I was in a Presbyterian context, in our presbytery. Mm-hmm. And you, um, you were a part of a process with so-and-so well, you said some things that uh, we ignored, and it turns out a number of years later, we saw what you said, and then it happened again and again and again and again. Oh. Can you help me understand what we're missing? And this is, I've been getting these kinds of emails over the last uh, six months or so, yeah. which are kind of humbling, maybe a little surprising, gratifying, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sobering when you think about uh, the number of particularly in church planning context, context, the number of situations that sound almost like eerily alike, yeah. you know? So, yeah, but the, the assessment process has been really interesting because I, I think in my, one, one last thing I'll say about it is by and large, pastors uh, are, are uh, in cluster B personality disorders. So in that Area now, cluster B is where you'd find narcissism, histrionic personality. There are three clusters. Uh-huh. One is kind of more eccentric, and one is more like avoidant and dependent. And then the cluster B is dramatic, grandiose, 
And that's where you find most pastors. I mean, I'm talking 80, 90% um, of assessments that I've done are somewhere, pastors are somewhere, not saying they're diagnosably narcissistic, but they are in yeah. on that spectrum, wow. which, which tells me that for those of us who do this work, um, well, it's, as a colleague of mine says, I think I, I say this in the book, for you to get on stage and say, this is the word of the Lord, yeah. you know, uh, to have a master of divinity degree, you mm-hmm. know, um, that, that's a kind of a big deal. Who does that? Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> yeah, I think that, uh, quote from your friend was, uh, something along the lines of, of ministry being a magnet for narcissists, uh, yes. because, who else yes. feels comfortable speaking on behalf of God on a regular basis? And I, I think I shared that quote with everybody that I told to read this book because I was yeah. just like, I mean, it makes so much sense when you think of it that way. But yeah. I mean, a pastor is a shepherd. Pastor mm-hmm. is not necessarily a preacher in that mm-hmm. they, I mean, that's part of the job description usually, but yeah. they're not always this you know, yeah. charismatic, exciting personality, but yeah. the people that are charismatic and exciting tend to grow the churches the biggest, yeah. right? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't grow a church as much or as quickly when you are just faithfully serving the flock. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's that's I I I'd never heard of those assessments beforehand either. I don't know if that's like um, you said it's in church planting like networks maybe that you got into that business. Yeah. And, and it's in other contexts as well. Um, I do a lot of them for my denomination. If you come in from a different seminary or outside the denomination, we'll do them for you and, you know, look at personality, but also look at like psychopathology, which is, you know, the narcissism spectrum and others like that. Yeah. And, but, um, you know, it, one of the reasons I'm a seminary prof now um, is because I, I wanted to get in on the front end of pastoral preparation. I wanted yeah. to do this work to get mm-hmm. pastors healthy before they they got into ministry. And so I, um, I now get to teach women and men who want to be in ministry leadership mm-hmm. um, and uh, kind of alert them to some of these things early on, you know, and it's, uh, it's really gratifying to see them kind of maybe like me, and maybe it's me just kind of replaying my own story of the gift of having a professor in my life say, hey, you have to look at some things, Chuck. Um, yeah. There are some blind spots that you're, you need to know about. I think that's so good for these um, young individuals who are hoping to be church leaders in some way to see that because uh-huh. not only are they going to recognize it in themselves, hopefully they're more careful about where they they go, you know, where they serve because, yeah. I mean, it, sometimes it's it's really hard to hear the voice of God <laughs> or, you know, yeah. you, you don't necessarily, there was a joke that one of our former pastors said, just, you know, he was a very humble man, but he would say, God's everywhere, mm-hmm. go where the money is. <laughs> And so mm-hmm. it was, I mean, yeah. he, he said it completely joking, but it was, you know, I think that's true for some people. They're like, well, this opportunity opened up and it's too good to pass up. But yeah. sometimes you're you're undoing the damage of an unhealthy church for years mm-hmm. and years and years afterward and what the damage may be on your family. And mm-hmm. so to be able to see that maybe even before you take that job, like just looking for what are my warning yeah. signs that maybe there's some unhealthy stuff happening here? And you told some different stories in the book of, you know, maybe it wasn't even the pastor. It was somebody who was like the head of the pastor search committee that was sort of like 
you know, puppet mastering the whole situation. Like they were setting right. people up for failure. So and that happens. Yeah. yeah. But to be that able happens. to see that, you know, or yeah. to maybe not always see it, but to be more cognizant of it and more aware is such a valuable tool. Um, I don't think, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know if that, is that normally a part of seminary or is this like something that's special for you guys? Um, I think we do a, a, a unique, uh, a uniquely, um, uh, what's a phrase? I don't know. I'm going to blow it, but <laughs> I, we're, we're unique in what we do. And yeah. I think we we're, we're really concerned about formation, the formation of a, a pastor through and through from the inside out. I think that's fairly unique. Uh, I'm not at the only seminary that does this. Right. Um, and, uh, but I'm always grateful to come across seminaries um, that take these things seriously. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, I've been a part of some different uh, Facebook, Facebook groups that maybe people that have been hurt by church leadership are a part of. And I, um, your book has been brought up in there before. And I told them, hey, guys, I'm interviewing this guy coming up mm -hmm. soon. And do you have any yeah. questions? And one of the questions had something to do, and she basically was asking, when you are aware of this narcissism that is prevalent in churches, how do you, how do you kind of get back into a church setting without feeling like you're always on like hyper alert? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's one, to be honest, my wife and I have struggled with uh, in in the 17 years since I experienced that, uh, what I would call um, a trauma-inducing um, situation mm -hmm. in ministry. Uh, I, for 10 years, I coped in ways that I think were self-protective and largely ignored what had happened, even though I was counseling and teaching and pastoring. Uh, then I was out in San Francisco pastoring, talking about these kinds of things, talking about emotional health. I was largely ignoring my own pain. Mm. And I know for me, uh, it was, uh, yeah, maybe 11, 12 years ago um, when I probably started dealing with it again in earnest in therapy. And I had to name it as, and I think that's an important piece of this is that it, you will reenact it again and again and again, if you don't deal with what's going on in your body, um, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn dynamics of trauma in our bodies where we, um, you know, our bodies co cope, we won't go, go into all four of those, but mm -hmm. our bodies cope in a variety of different ways and uh, without us even knowing it. Uh, and we, we will step into a church that uh, there may be a song that's played um, there may be a sermon topic that's preached on where it's like you're right back there again. Yeah. And so you've got to do your work, uh, mm -hmm. your trauma work, I would say. And uh, but I, I think I think there are those of us who've been pastors. I was just talking to a friend who recently uh, he, he's become a colleague, uh, Wynn Collier. He's uh, mm -hmm. writing. He's about to publish the authorized biography on Eugene Peterson. Oh, wow. And he's a beautiful soul. Mm -hmm. We were talking about this and he says, you know, over the years, I've learned to counsel people to step away from the church uh, for a season. Mm -hmm. um, there are times where we simply need to step away 
and do our own work. Yeah. Um, it may just be too painful, too traumatizing. Um, I've counseled, by the way, people uh, people who have been abused by Catholic priests, and I've counseled priests who've been abused when they were children by Catholic oh, priests. Oh, wow. Cycle um, of trauma. And we, of course, you know, the, the um, massive story of Catholic, Catholic um, uh, sexual abuse, right? So, and, uh, and, you know, I was, I was counseling, I remember counseling this priest who's like, uh, every time I do mass, I re-traumatize myself. Mm. And, and we had to talk about, so what would it look like for you to step away for, I can't step away. This has been my whole life since I was an altar boy. This is all I know. Yeah. And so, um, I probably said too much already, but take good care of yourself. Pay attention yeah. to your trauma, your own story, your own triggers. Um, do self-care. See a therapist. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, yeah. my husband, he is for the first time in our marriage, no longer working in a church. And um, the mm. same is true for, you know, several of our friends. And I think it, he struggled a lot with identity afterward because he was like, this is what I'm good at. Like, this is what I do. This is what my skill set, this is what my education has prepared me for. And, um, and it has, it was really hard at first, but I think, I think it's so important. And I mean, I told him this, like I told him I didn't, I didn't like the person he was while he was serving there. Like that was no longer him. And, um, and, you know, talking to other wives of, folks who have served alongside, but, you know, when they stepped away, it was hard and they had to grieve that loss, but them grieving was a lot healthier than when they were fighting and, Mm -hmm. you know, getting into counseling on a regular basis has been Mm -hmm. so, so important for each one of these people. And, you know, knowing that even if you felt called to ministry, sometimes we need to step, yeah, like you said, step away for a while. And that's, that's okay. That's not a bad thing. That's, right. that's, that's a healthy yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for maybe people who, um, who start to see these warning signs around them, but maybe they don't want to acknowledge them. I mean, churches are sometimes our most comfortable places, but maybe we see some big time problems, but this is where our friends are. This is where our families are. Do you have any advice for people who feel like maybe they've been through something um, that was hard before in a church and they don't want to lose all their friends again or whatever it might be? So they, they're, they're afraid to kind of leave the church that they're in right now because they're afraid to leave their community or expose that community or, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's really tricky. And I'm thinking of, and now it's, it's become a much more public story, but I'm thinking of, of what happened at Willow Creek mm-hmm. and the really brave women who, uh, decided to tell their stories and experienced loss of relationship. Um, They experienced uh, being ostracized by community. I think it's a risk when you, when you live with integrity and you're willing to name some of the dynamics of what's going on, it's a risk. You will lose community. I'm doing some counseling for a couple right now who left a thriving large church plant with a celebrity pastor uh, they were, uh, he was an elder, they were prominent group leaders, and they decided to, to say some things. 
Uh, and uh, they, in an almost cultish kind of way, were immediately ostracized by the community. You know, like, we, you're done. We're not talking to you. We're not babysitting your kids anymore. We're not returning your phone calls. And so yeah. um, it doesn't always happen like that. But there, there's a risk involved. Uh, we haven't really gotten into it, but there's a kind of psychology around followers of narcissistic leaders. Yeah. Um, a man named Gerald Post has been doing this work for 30 plus years as a CIA profiler, in fact. Oh, wow. And he talks about the ideal hungry follower. In other words, this person so idealizes the the narcissist that she or he attaches their very identity to that person. Not, mm-hmm. not to Jesus, not to the gospel, but to the person. To the person. Um, and so if you if you violate that that um you know, that attachment relationship that they have in a sense, you know, you, um, you, you lose trust with them. And I've seen this happen time and time again, where it's like, but we were close friends, but, um, I trusted you with my story. So it's extraordinarily painful to, to take that risk. And it is a risk, I think, especially when there are those who are unwilling to see the dynamics that you see. And those can be some of your closest friends. Um, I, I have, I've seen, I've seen those kind of situations before with friends and family, um, you know, maybe not in my own situation, but in others where, yeah, that's, it is very mm-hmm. much the case and it it's hard, but I mean, I guess you at some point you have to choose, am I going to, you know, live in this, with this internal conflict all the time, or am I going to mm-hmm. walk away and, know that God is even more faithful than, you know, any friend that this world has to offer and that God is going to yeah. take care of me and give me true community that is not, you know, an unhealthy mm-hmm. environment or this, this fake, yeah. um, this fake sort of, uh, yeah. community. Um, so yep. I, I really appreciate everything you've shared. I think there's just so much insight in, yeah. um, in the research that you've done and the stories that you've told um, through your book. And I can't recommend when narcissism comes to church enough. Um, how, how can people find you, Chuck? Yeah. Uh, so I have a website. It's chuckdegroat.net. Um, and uh, I don't blog as much as I used to, uh, but when I'm inspired, I'll, I'll do something. <laughs> yeah. I blogged a little bit more before the book. Uh, came out, but uh, I'm on Twitter. I probably do most most of my stuff over at Twitter, at Chuck DeGroat, and that's where I'm at on Facebook and Instagram, where I'm just kind of learning the ropes of Instagram. I think that's where you tried to get in touch with me, and I was like, <laughs> I don't even know if I know how to answer a message on Instagram, you know? So You do now. <laughs> you answer. I do now, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, navigating carefully the interwebs. Um, I... <laughs> I've really actually appreciated Twitter, even though it can be toxic. I mean, you can block and mute people and mm-hmm. not be friends with them. But I, I've, I've made so many connections. And I think one of the things that's been encouraging in this season is uh, my, my book came out, but uh, there are a number of others that uh, have come out around the same time. Diane Langberg's work, uh, Wade Mullen's work. Um, Scott McKnight, his daughter Laura uh, Berenger, their work, a community called Tove on the Willow Creek situation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, I'm missing some in there, but 
there have been a number of um, sort of complementary books, like one isn't duplicating another, you know, okay. on these, these kinds of topics, you know, where Wade is talking about organizations and image management and Diane Langbert's talking about power and authority in the church and Scott Scott and Laura are talking about Willow Creek in that situation and others. I'm I'm really gratified by that. I mean, I think uh, there 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 is this moment of reckoning in in uh, in the painful sense of the word and in the hopeful sense of the word. That the hopeful sense is that God brings new things out of death. You know, life right. out of death. God mm-hmm. tells resurrection stories, and so. Uh, that's what I long for in the church is as we tell the truth about these things and open up the conversation and name the pain that um, Jesus is Lord. And uh, we we will see some resurrection hope on the other side of a really painful conversation. So, yeah, I think that's the most important part. Not that we call out things because, I mean, that's an important step to, for that to happen, but calling it out is only part of it. And the yeah, healing that yeah. Jesus brings and the yeah. way that he uses so many things that he's given us in the body of Christ and counselors yeah. and yeah. Um, and his word just to be yeah. a, like a balm on these wounds yeah. and to bring yeah. restoration. And I, I just, that's what I pray for, for everybody that's listening, um, because this is such a huge issue in churches. We don't want it to be there. We want these folks that are, are wounding people to repent and to be restored and to help bring mm. reconciliation. Um, and we want people that have been hurt to not walk away from Jesus because of the way that a representative mm. or a so-called representative yeah. of Jesus um, treated them. We want the body of Christ to grow and to be healthy. And that's that's the whole point of this, right? So. Yeah, that's really well said. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time this evening. I yeah. really appreciate it. And I know that it's yeah. going to be a blessing to so many people. It was so interesting to hear Chuck share about the potential for serious damage at the hands of narcissists in churches. I also appreciate how he truly hopes that those exhibiting narcissistic behavior would come to a place of true repentance and restoration. That desire reminds me so much of just the power of the gospel to bring about radical transformation. You can find out more about Chuck and contact him through his website, chuckdegroat.com. If you enjoy The Faithful Podcast, please leave me a rating and review. Reviews help people find the podcast so that it can be a blessing to them. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can find me at faithfulpodcast.podbean.com or on Instagram at Faithful Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and remember to stay faithful, friends.